I'd like you to try something for a minute, whether you live in Ontario or anywhere in Canada. Think of the news reports that you've heard, mostly from Toronto, that involve gun violence. Make a note of what immediately comes to mind when you hear one of them. Now ask yourself, how confident are you that the image that just popped into your head represents the majority of gun violence in the province? Because it doesn't. In Toronto this week, a family was torn apart when they lost yet another member to bullets. Surveillance footage shows a silver SUV circling a building. Then it pulls up beside a car filled with people. A single shot is fired. Blood remains outside this 24-hour restaurant on Eglinton West near Oakwood after a shooting overnight that police describe as showing a blatant disregard for human life. Third shooting in three straight nights. In all the cases, the attacks were in heavily populated areas of the downtown core of the city, and there are no suspects in any of them. A lot of factors go into the way the media in Ontario and everywhere else covers gun violence. Proximity to a large audience plays a role, hence the stories out of Toronto. But so does the need for headlines anywhere, and so do race and relationships with police. And a gang-affiliated shooting in a dense neighborhood checks all of those boxes. So you hear about it. But there is a gun violence crisis in Ontario that has nothing to do with the one you probably thought we were discussing today. And the reason that you didn't realize it was happening is because it doesn't check any of those boxes I just mentioned. And not only does it not check them, it involves the one thing that journalists who are my age were taught in journalism school never to report on. So is it any wonder we didn't see these numbers until they were right in front of us? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Natasha Saunders is a pediatrician at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. She is also the co-author of a new study that looks at what gun violence in Ontario really is. Hello, Dr. Saunders. Hi, how are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. I want to start by asking you, before we get into to the results of the study and, and what you guys looked at and, and what potential solutions uh, might be, if I were going to ask, um, you know, just an average group of Ontarians uh, what they would expect a study like this that looked at gun injuries and deaths in the province to find, um, what, do you, what do you think that they would come back with? So I think it would depend on where you ask that question. I think mm -hmm. if you lived in an urban center um, in Ontario, that the response might be a lot about gun violence or um, thinking that uh, firearms are a major contributor to gun violence and deaths uh, in Ontario. If you went into more rural areas, say northern Ontario, you may get a different response and there may be increased recognition there that um, suicide and self-harm are a contributor to, to gun violence. So, I, Sorry, to gun, to gun death. So I think it depends on who you ask and where you ask the question. Fair enough. What about when you um, started the study? What were the uh, results you guys were thinking you might find as it began? Well, based on some of the previous work we had done, we knew that there was going to be a large proportion of individuals in the province who were injured um, unintentionally. We also knew that, or we expected rather that 
urban areas would be predominantly affected by gun violence. Um, I don't know that we knew the extent to which uh, firearm deaths occurred by by suicide or self-harm. And so I think that was a bit of an unknown. And when we sort of balance out the overall number of injuries and not, not just compare the deaths, I think that was something that we were, we weren't really expecting or really knew because nowhere um, in Ontario do we record the number of firearm injuries. We only often record fatalities. Um, so that was something that we weren't really sure of before getting into all this. So tell me then um, what you did, especially if we don't usually record uh, gun injuries and, and what the study eventually found. Yeah, so we used a number of linked health and administrative data sets um, that are linked at ICES, which is formerly the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences. And what this does is we have records of health information, so emergency room visits, hospitalizations, um, and deaths in the province um, linked to some sociodemographic uh, characteristics. So linked to anybody who has OHIP registration or provincial health registry data. Um, and that's how we um, determine individual level, you know, age or their sex or the neighborhood with which they, that, that they live in um, so that we could understand the neighborhood level income quintile. And we also determined if they lived in a rural versus an urban area. And then what we did was we took the whole population of Ontario over this 14-year period, and we looked to count the number of deaths um, or firearm injuries um, or both um, through the entire province um, over this time period. And the we have data for deaths up until 2016, and that's why the study ended there. Um, so that's sort of how the study came about. What was the major uh, cause of injuries and death then? So when we look across all firearm injuries that happened uh, in the province, including deaths, there were about 6,500 firearm injuries and deaths over the 14-year period. In terms of the breakdown, we found about a third of those injuries were assault-related, so where somebody experienced a firearm injury by being assaulted or from a violent death. Um, another th- one-third were from self-harm, um, where an individual had a self-inflicted firearm injury. And another third were injuries of um, that were unintentional, um, so where the victim or the, the individual injured was not the, necessarily the intended uh, victim. What, what we also found was that um, the, the death rate varied. So uh, not surprisingly, those who were unintentionally injured had a lower death rate. So only about 7, 7% of those um, who were unintentionally injured died, which is a good thing. Um, they do represent near misses, though. <laughs> um, you know, if somebody is shot in the leg um, instead of the chest, um, it, it's, it's a pretty close uh, potential for, <laughs> for death there. Um, what we found with assaults is that about a third of individuals who were assaulted died by that assault. And of those who were injured by self-harm, um, 90, almost 92% were killed. So were successful um, in completing that suicide. Um, so certainly there's variability in the rate of death by the type of injury. But what we did show is that overall um, that self-harm accounts for a large, the the largest proportion, so two-thirds of the deaths that we um, measured uh, of all firearm uh, deaths. 
And what we also showed is that it's really important to measure both deaths and overall injuries, because when you only measure firearm fatalities, which is sort of what is often reported in in statistics, for example, from Statistics Canada, that is a real underrepresentation of what's actually going on. Well, and when things are reported by Statistics Canada, that tends to be um, what gets them into the news and certainly uh, headlines, you know, as you kind of pointed out at the beginning, uh, in the major urban areas tend to focus on uh, the danger of, you know, uh, guns and gangs related shootings. But what, why aren't we talking about uh, self-harm being such a leading cause of gun deaths? Like, you know, I've not seen this reported anywhere. Well, well, we should be, if you ask me, as somebody who is a healthcare provider who cares for individuals who ha- who mm-hmm. are um, at risk of or have mental illness. Um, certainly, you know, a gun death in the city of Toronto makes headlines almost every day. Um, but we don't hear about the 45-year-old or 50-year-old man who is living in northern Ontario who dies by suicide. And part of that may be related to um, this stigma that goes along with mental illness, that we don't talk about it as much. Um, You know, we're making inroads in certain populations, in particular in in younger people, in terms of reducing that stigma. But I think in rural Ontario, um, in older individuals, we may have, uh, there's an opportunity to improve our ability to reduce the stigma that um, happens so that, so it doesn't get discussed as much. Um, The other thing is with, um, you know, this study didn't look at the the weapon type, so whether or not it was a handgun or a rifle, but, um, you know, there's a lot of discourse around banning handguns and and the legislation surrounding firearms, um, and that often is related to what goes on in the city, but I think there is a recognition that those living in rural areas often may have a firearm in the home for protection, for example, from wildlife or for hunting. And so it, it's not that gang-related violence. It's not, people don't always think of it as at the forefront in terms of a easily preventable um, death when there is a lot we can do actually to prevent, prevent those deaths. Did the study track uh, whether or not the level of deaths or injuries uh, increased or decreased over time? It did. Um, we looked at the rates of injury um, by intent over time, and the the rates are pretty stable over time, with the exception of um, in more recent years, we've seen a higher number of firearm assaults, um, and that's sort of been since around 2014 or 15. Again, we didn't collect data um you know, beyond 2016, because we don't have those death data yet. Um, But certainly we are starting to see that trend upward. But overall, in terms of our our rates of suicide or unintentional injury and and generally assault, it's a a pretty flat line. We haven't seen huge changes over time. Um, And this suggests that, you know, despite this problem existing, we haven't done enough to prevent it or or reduce the potential harm. Do you have a way to give me a sense of um, the scale of the problem of uh, self-harm with guns in this province? Um, is it compared compared to other rates of death or, you know, how bad is this? How bad is this problem we're dealing with? So suicide is one of the leading causes of death in young people in Canada. So it, I believe, I mean, it changes a little bit from year to year, but it's a, it's about the second leading cause of death, at least in, in young adults. Um, and in terms of firearm injuries, this wasn't part of this study, but we've previously published data to show that around 13% of suicides in Canada are by firearm. Um, and it's predominantly males that uh, die by 
firearm injury, whereas uh, women often use other um, mechanisms. So for example, overdose, um, mm-hmm. w- but the, the fatal, um, you know, quick impulsive um, type of injury that occurs with a firearm injury is m- more common in males. So about 13% of, of suicides. So it's, it's not an insignificant proportion of, of these deaths. Can you explain to me the uh, rural-urban split um, with self-harm? Because that seems to be the portion of the study that uh, really grabbed people's attention. Yeah, so this particular study didn't get at the why of why we're seeing these differences. Um, Certainly, I think um, there is... A huge, there are huge differences in access to mental health care for those living in urban versus rural um, areas. Our team has published pretty extensively on this. Um, and what we've shown is that those living in northern Ontario in rural areas have um, really uh, high rates of suicide and self-harm uh, compared to the provincial average. They there are higher rates of hospitalization and emergency room visits for mental illness um, and really poor access to specialist care. So if you think of somebody with severe depression or severe anxiety who should probably be seen by a specialist, um, for example, a psychiatrist or with a mental health care, care provider, access to that in rural areas is very, very poor. Um, and we our, our mental health system is not structured in a way that allows equitable delivery of health, mental health care at this time. Um, so it may be that um, it's a it's a mental health system access issue. It may be the population where a population where stigma plays a role as well. So it, it could be a combination of things, but we but certainly access is, is a contributing factor. And I know it's um, traditionally been difficult to get uh, enough doctors in general, let alone specialists uh, to rural communities. Are there ways Ways of creating programs. Are there programs that exist that can maybe offset that lack of access a bit, even if they won't necessarily bring in, you know, an army of an army of mental health specialists? For sure, there are ways. Um, how effectively they can be implemented is a whole other uh, question. Um, so one of the things that has been in the province for quite a while is telepsychiatry. So um, where I work at the Hospital for Sick Children, for example, child health specialists who are psychiatrists may provide uh, mental health care to those living in rural areas. The rollout of that has not been as widespread as it could be. So we know that it's really underutilized. And I think with COVID, though we don't have the data yet, we know that there has been a huge shift to virtual care, which in theory should break down many of these geographic barriers. So anybody with an internet connection or a phone or a a computer um, should be able to access some of the same services for counseling or for psychiatric care in an outpatient setting, which is, you know, largely a lot of the preventive care, um, with the shift to virtual care. Um, and we've seen a huge transformation with COVID. And so it is my hope, uh, that, um, this will help to break down some of these barriers as we move forward so that the, the urban rural divide in, uh, mental health equity doesn't continue to exist. How much, and I know I'm asking you, um, to, to answer something that's not in the study, but I'd, be, I'd love to have your opinion of how much, uh, how much does the stigma 
impact uh, rural communities compared to urban ones when you look at who talks and who doesn't talk about their mental health? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know. You know, I personally haven't done a lot of work up in um, more, more Northern Ontario or rural communities um, to, to speak to patients. I think stigma continues to play a role everywhere. And I don't, I don't think it's just uh, rural areas that the stigma exists. I think um, we see it in many different populations. Um, I, I don't think we know. What about ways to end uh, the stigma or at least reduce it? Um, how do you get that message across? Uh, and I would say particularly to rural communities, but it could be anywhere. I mean, when I came up uh, through journalism school, and, and I think tons of young journalists came up the same way, we were told specifically you never, ever report on a suicide um, because it could potentially encourage more people. And now that we learn more about mental health, I wonder if that's still effective. Yeah, I think having discussions, um, opening up conversations are really important um, so that people feel comfortable talking about their mental health. And I think it's increasingly being recognized. How can we do it? I think um, there are many ways. I think in in our school system, I think we can start early on by talking about our mental health and ensuring that there are, are resources there. I think you know, in in healthcare, certainly providing an opening and and giving families or individuals opportunities to discuss their mental well being and and placing it at the forefront of their physical health, um, uh, placing it ahead of their physical health needs often because you know we often talk about your blood pressure or your heart disease or what have you, but we don't often talk about mental illness and and. It is. It goes undetected, and if you give patients or families an opportunity to talk about that, then I think it, it opens the door for that discussion, so that individuals can get the help they need. So schools, I think, also workplaces can also potentially um, provide safe spaces. So um, at our organization, for example, there are many different resources for staff to access mental health support, especially, for example, through the COVID-19 crisis um, and having workplaces that have environments that are accepting of or or friendly for individuals to come and speak to somebody confidentially can really be helpful and get the conversation going so that individuals can get the help that they need. This study basically just came out. So it's it's too early for any concrete action to be taken. But uh, if over the next year, um, levels of government could address this, uh, particularly in, in the province, I guess, since it, it focuses on Ontario, uh, what concrete things need to happen? What's a great first step? A, a great first step. So I guess when it comes to what the government can do, so people often talk about um, firearm legislation, which is actually a federal, um, this federal legislation, it's not provincial. And so um, I think it would have to be discussions with the federal government as opposed to the provincial government. But, you know, with that said, I think currently as a as a healthcare provider, um, we often want to ensure that firearms are removed from the home uh, or the environment of those who are at risk of uh, self-harm or who are struggling with mental illness. And currently, there are not easy ways to do that. So if I have a patient who has a mental illness and, and I always now ask if they have access to a firearm in the home, first, there's a discussion around um, the safety of that firearm in the home and how do you 
how do you get that out of the home and counseling them around the risks in individuals who are at risk of self-harm. But then beyond that, if a family um, or patient is not willing to temporarily remove that firearm from the home, then what are the options? And, and it becomes a little bit more tricky because as a physician, I can't just, you know, I don't want to send a police to a house to remove a firearm from the home. So if there were easier ways um, in terms of the balance between patient confidentiality and um, patient safety um, to make sure that firearm could be removed from the home. That That is a, something that we could do moving forward. I think, um, you know, there's the government who can legislate things, um, but at the same time, we also, as healthcare providers, need to think about um, ensuring we get this message through to everybody who is providing care for those who are at risk for mental illness so that we can counsel individuals to get firearms out of their home so that they're not accessible. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to walk us through that. And I hope we see some action out of this study. I hope so, too. Thanks so much. Dr. Natasha Saunders. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. Find us in your podcast player. Every single podcast player in the world, I think. If you find one and we're not in it, tell me. We'll make sure we're there. You can also, of course, email us. The Big Story Podcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. <laughs>